0: Hey Kings and Queens, it's your girl Valencia Griffin-Wallace, the host of Define You Radio and welcome to episode 193. Welcome to the Define You Radio podcast where class is always in session. Get ready for the life lessons, tips and stories to help you define your life. And now your host, the drill sergeant with love, Valencia Griffin-Wallace. On today's class, I get the chance to interview Myesha Gilliam-L. She's a wife, mother of six, best-selling author, and also an advocate against domestic violence and childhood molestation. She shares with us how she was given a second chance at life after having her heart stop for not one, not two, but 16 minutes. It's an interesting episode. But before we get into today's episode, I wanted to make sure I tell you queens about something I am truly excited about. It is going down queen-like at the end of May, the Move Retreat. You know, last year we had the Move Experience Conference in New Orleans. Now we're having the Move Retreat. We are limiting it to a select number of queens to make sure we all get what we came for. It is a weekend of refreshing, connecting, and growing spiritually, professionally, most of all, personally. We would love to have you come out and join us in the beautiful Jacksonville, Florida, May 31st through June 2nd. For more information, just go to my website, valenciagwallis.com slash events or bit. Dot lee slash move retreat. Okay, enough about that. Let's dive head first into this great interview with my Isha Gilliam L. Pens and Papers ready. Class is now in session. Miss, and you know I'm Southern, so of course I'm going to say Miss, my, (laughs) my Isha. Tell me a little bit about the obstacles you have faced in life.
1: One of the major obstacles that I faced in life that I'll talk about is I am a survivor of childhood molestation and domestic violence. I grew up in a home where my mom was in a domestic violent relationship For 11 years, from the time I was five until I was approximately 18, um, I watched this go on within my household. And then that translated into relationships that I developed into my teen and adulthood years. And so that was a major obstacle in my life. And then the second obstacle, major obstacle that I faced in my life was in 2012 when I experienced pregnancy-induced cardiomyopathy. My heart stopped for 16 minutes. Um, They pronounced me and were about to take me to the morgue, and I heard the Lord say, not yet. And Mm -hmm. three days later, I was waking up out of my um,
0: coma. We're we're definitely going to get into pronouncing forming cardiomyopathy. Yes, cardiomyopathy. I said it right. Yes. But I want to kind of rewind and go back to your childhood um, and watching your mom be abused because I know now you are an advocate for domestic violence and childhood molestation. Watching your mom go through that Tell me if you could kind of go back in your childhood mind and what did you feel? Did it become normal or did it always seem like this isn't right?
1: For me, initially, um, since it was a new environment for me, um, because it was a new boyfriend at the time for her, it was, I was a little confused because he started out being like a Romeo. Being really nice, being pleasant, you know, being kind of the best stepdad ever, showing me different things, teaching me different things. And then it was like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So when him and my mom were alone, he would become a totally different person. His demeanor would change, his attitude would change, his voice would change, he would be yelling. And so In my mind, I was very confused. I knew, like you said, that it was not right for him to be behaving in two separate manners. You know, around people, he was one way, and then outside, away from people, he was another way. So I knew that it wasn't right to answer your question. I always felt like there was something wrong with what it was that he was doing and how he was behaving.
0: I actually saw you know, growing up as far as dealing with my mom and the man that she married, it wasn't so much the physical abuse that I saw. It was more of the verbal abuse. Yes. I'm the oldest. So I was very protective of, you know, my mom and my baby sister. And soon as I got tall enough. They were, either he was pushing her or something. My mom was real short. And I just remember like standing up to him and telling him, I'm not scared of you. And that was a defining moment definitely in my life is to how to say you're not scared even when you really are. Right.
1: That's powerful because so few people are able to actually do that. Um, they remain at a, in a state of fear when it comes to um, the oppressors and the abusers because they don't, you know, you can't read them. You don't necessarily know what their reaction is going to be from you standing up to them. So that's a huge deal being able to stand up to them and let them know I am no longer in fear of you. Um, you are not in control of my life and, and what goes on around me anymore. I'm taking back my power. And a lot of times they have big issues with...
0: Did you and your mom ever have a conversation?
1: My mother, unfortunately, suffered from alcoholism. And I truly believe that a lot of her childhood is the reason why she suffered from alcoholism. But I also believe that that is a lot of the reason why she continued to go to these type of relationships. My mother was very private. She was an authoritarian parent, which means that, you know, you listen to what I say, children are to be seen and not heard. So she would never... Discuss the things that were going on as far as her relationship with me because she felt as though it was none of my business. I always wanted to ask why she stayed. I always wanted to ask why she got into the situation, but I was always fearful that, you know, I would get into trouble or she would think I was being disrespectful. So I never said anything, not even. When my mother was on her deathbed and had stopped drinking, I never, ever approached her or felt safe enough to approach her with asking her that. I thought it would embarrass her or humiliate her or make her angry. That's
0: interesting that, you know, you said your mom was an alcoholic and Dealt with domestic violence. My mom was a drug addict. You know, she was killed when I was seventeen. So when she died, wow. she was she quote unquote still being an addict. Right. But I re- but I asked her. Um, in fact, roughly about three weeks before she died, like why don't you stop doing this? I had a very contentious relationship with her husband, but by that time they had separated. And I remember, you know, I made her make a choice. I think I was in eighth grade. It was either going to be me or him. And if I, if she didn't, if the situation didn't change, I was going to kill him. And I was in eighth grade when I told her this, um, she chose him and, you know, of course, many, many years later, and it took a lot of forgiving with that and, um, because she did choose him. Cause she knew in eighth grade, I was serious. I was like, look, I'm going to kill your husband, mom, (laughs) you know? So, I mean, I laugh about it, but it's not, it's funny and not, but that's something else that we have in, in common as well is, is that part. And I think most people probably don't ask those questions or get a chance to ask their parents why. Mm. But when my mom died, I got her journals from a stint she did in rehab. Oh, wow! And I, and I praise God that I got it because I was able to read and understand how yeah. the addiction started. Yes. So that was that was interesting. In your advocacy work, do you find yourself more, you know, emotionally attached than you should be? Because it, it, you could relate to them so well.
1: It depends on the situation. With some people, you're drawn in and Mm. um, you just have this overwhelming desire for them to get what you're saying to them, to get the encouragement, to get um, their self-esteem back to the place where it needs to be for them to get away. And then with other people, it's much simpler because something within them just clicks and they start to realize their worth. And they start Mm. to recognize like who they actually are in God. And then that's their point or their epiphany where they actually wake up. So yes, to your question, I do find myself sometimes getting attached to people and uh, becoming emotional about their situation and having to step back and kind of look at the situation as a whole and tell myself that. You know, if I get drawn in, then I can't be of any assistance to them. So I have to stay focused. I have to do what God has called me to do in the way in which he's called me to do it in order to help them get through the situation and get to the place where they need to be, if you understand what I'm saying.
0: No, I definitely Un- understand. It's like you want to be emotionally attached, but you yes. have to be somewhat emotionally detached so you can stay in your role, so to speak, and actually help them. So right. that's, that's very interesting because a lot of times people go through situations and don't reach back to, to help others. So, you know, kudos to you for doing that. What do you think is a common myth uh, with domestic violence and childhood molestation since you have experience in both?
1: I think one of the common threads is that it happens uh, more outside of the house. People tend to think that um, the perpetrators are outside of the home when you know nine out of ten times, it's somebody close to the person. It's like a close family friend. It's a relative. It's that cousin that comes over. And sometimes, unfortunately, it even ends up being biological parents um, that are doing these things. It's always people that are close to the children or close enough that they can get in and, you know, obtain that trust from both the parents and the children. Because if you get if they get the parents under their wing, then the child really has no protection at all.
0: Mm. Hashtag real talk. Yes, that's that's real real talk. I wonder what's the stats? Because um, I know in school we learned you know, stranger danger, like you yes. know. But when I was younger, they really didn't talk about you know home danger, like the perv is in your DNA or exactly. you know something like that. Exactly. I, Are they teaching that to kids now, you think? Kids are definitely more aware now, but I remember learning, you know, stranger danger.
1: Yes, and the sad thing is, is that, like you said, when I was younger, we had that in school. We had Officer Friendly that Mm. would come to our school and talk to us about the stranger danger. Well, I'm in Virginia right now, and I'm in a small town, and, you know, they've taken it out of the school. Um, They
0: don't
1: have that program here anymore. So I Mm. was amazed that they stopped that with all of the things that are going on in our world right now, as far as children being abducted and, you know, the molestation rates and all of that. I would think that that would be a prevalent thing within the school system now, but it's not. Mm. I
0: think maybe society thinks that you know kids have so much access to, to stuff and they're so much smarter and everything right. else that they could just learn on their own but kids are still getting trafficked and yes, they are. things like that um and just disappear you'll see posts sometimes on facebook help my friend find their child and you, you know for a day or two and then you hear Nothing else about it, you know?
1: And social media has made our children a lot more vulnerable. They're left for a longer period of time without parents watching them. Back when I was younger, you know, we would watch television together. We would eat dinner together. But now, if you notice in society, even when we go out to eat um, and you look around at the different tables, everybody's on their cell phone. Yeah. There's not really any, any interaction anymore. Yeah. Um, social interaction with people other than social media. And what's sad though, that's so true.
0: And I had to make a conscious effort last year that if everybody was at home Yes, is, you know, which is harder, you know, because the way my husband works and my son being twenty one and mom's no longer cool, right? <laughs> everybody's at home at the same time, we're eating dinner. No cell phones or cell phones down. And it's sad that I had to make that like a rule. And that, that's a benefit of being the woman of the house or the, right. the the one that cooks in that's the right. house.
1: That's right. <laughs> we set the tone. We we are the nurturers of the house and we set the tone. And it's the same in my house, like you're saying, we have a rule in here and we have phone free time. You know, you can't have your phone when we have family night and we have phone free time. So when we're at the table eating, we are not having our phones. We're not picking our phones up. We have a location where we put our phones and that's where they stay until dinner is over or until the movie that we are watching is over. Because you you have to have a break from it at some point. It serves its purpose, but you have to have a break from it in order to clear your mind, in order to, you know, just allow that creative power to flow that God has given you instead of being so indulged in it every single moment of your day.
0: Mm. I'm going to implement that. I'm I'm going to uh buy a locker and we're going to implement more phone-free time. I really really like that cuz even when we have uh family time watching a movie, my son is snapchatting and yeah. whatever yeah. else. And so, and even my husband, I'm like, you don't even have that many Facebook friends. He really don't. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to implement that.
1: That's though. You know, you find yourself scrolling pages and, you know, before you know it, an hour has gone past and you're like, oh, my goodness, where did the day go?
0: Yeah, I'll get something on YouTube. Yes. I'm not um, as bad. I've been monitoring my social media a little more. Yes. Cause I implemented like a challenge in my group last year. You know, I'm always telling them about watching their time on social media, but I'll put a, put YouTube on and get caught up yes. on <laughs> watching stuff that has nothing to do with, with anything. So yeah, I want to. Another. Yeah. Right. Cause it, it's a, it's a, it's a funnel, like they're yeah. funnel marketing, yes. like it's sucking me in, but yeah. You mentioned you got into a domestic violence situation as well. Yes. Tell um, me a little bit about that.
1: At the age of 14 was my first occurrence with it. You know, mm-hmm. you you find a young man that you really think likes you and so I wasn't the most popular kid in school. <laughs> I was considered what we used to call a nerd. Mm-hmm. So to have this hip kid Liking me was just like totally, uh, it just blew my mind that he even had an interest in me. So I, um, we started dating. And, and the first thing is that we were 14. I was right. 14. He was 16 years old. And so he invited me to come and eat dinner at his house. And when I showed up to eat dinner at his house, I think I may have said something to make him upset. And before I knew it, he had taken his belt off of his pants like he was going to hit me with the belt. Wow. And I'm like, now thinking about that, that at 16 years old, he was already starting with this behavior. Hmm. You know, so I was like, we really, really have to watch and be mindful that though we may think they're children, we have to wonder what these kids are seeing at home. Yeah. Yeah. And what they're being involved in at home. Because then that, for me, led to another relationship. And then it was like a vicious cycle to the point where when I was 21, I was in a long term relationship um, with someone five years I stayed in that relationship being abused. And It was because my self-esteem was not where it needed to be. I really didn't know who I was. And Mm -hmm. I grew up in a house looking and watching my mother accept it. And so at some point, I began to feel like this is what a normal relationship is. Right. And so I had to retrain myself and and my thoughts on what love was, Hmm. which was pretty difficult. Wow, to know that you
0: experienced it that young, and I think mm-hmm. maybe now more people talk about you know teen dating violence that's the term that yeah. they're they're using, but it's domestic it's just violence, period yeah. um, and kids do see a lot in in their home, and it's hard. When if nobody around you has a happy, healthy relationship and you only see it on TV, you think in reality that doesn't exist. Right. And that's sad, uh, but very, very true. Did you find yourself suffering from a form of PTSD when you got out, when you got free from the domestic violence relationships?
1: Oh yes, ma'am, definitely, um, and that's one thing that a lot of people don't talk about or acknowledge. Yep. Um, they just associate that with like uh, military and you know uh, psychological disorders from people like anxiety and things like that. They don't associate that with domestic violence and childhood molestation. Hmm. And if you really think about it, it's a huge part of molestation and domestic violence because when you get into another relationship a healthy relationship with somebody else some of those things come back to haunt you that you think you have gotten rid of somebody may touch you a certain way not meaning you any harm and All a right. flashback will come to you you'll jump or Somebody will yell or raise their voice at you and you'll find yourself cowering in a corner somewhere Mm -hmm. and you thought you had gotten over these things. You know, they're still laying dormant within you. A lot of times victims don't address the issues or they don't get help for the issue because they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed Mm -hmm. that people are going to say, oh, well, you wanted it or you you didn't have to stay. You could have just walked away because most people aren't educated enough as far as the topic is concerned. They just go off of what they hear in society. And the societal norm is you can just leave. You can just walk away, but most people don't realize that that is the point when you are the most vulnerable. That is the point when you are in the most danger is when you tell a perpetrator that I am leaving you because at that point they have nothing to lose. They have nothing to lose. So now I'm going to lose you. Okay, I'll lose you then. Now I can attempt to take your life or now I can attempt to really harm you because you're going to leave me anyway. And when you have children, and when you don't have a plan in place, and this is what I tell people, you need to have a plan in place, and you need to make sure that you are safe. Mm -hmm. It sounds good to say just leave, but it's not a safe thing to tell people, especially when they have nowhere to go, no resources, because then they'll end up back with the perpetrator again, because he's the main source of income, (coughs) he's the provider of the family. He's threatening the children. He's threatening to take the children because you don't have the finances to take care of them. So we have to begin to educate in our communities as far as this so that people can, you know, think about it and be able to actually help people that are in the situation without being judgmental and making Mm. them feel 10 times worse than what they already feel.
0: You you hit so many nails on the head with that because people don't talk about PTSD. I know that was something that I dealt with um, yes. after my domestic violence situation. They don't talk about the plan that you need. They don't tell you that, you know, yeah, you need to get a restraining order, but let's be honest with what a restraining order does and does not do. So, yeah, they definitely those conversations need to to be had and we did a show a while back about domestic violence and I gave my exact plan down to a t what exactly how I left about putting the birth certificates and those things at my sister's house and um having that the clothes at my sister's house and those things. And it was crazy. And with me, a lot of people just couldn't believe I was in a domestic violence relationship because I'm a fighter. Right. That's definitely um, something people have an image of what that woman or that man in that situation looks like. And anyone that knew me knew I was a fighter. And what's crazy because my son is twenty-one, and he was roughly about one or two then. Even now, sometimes, and I was in that relationship maybe about two years, give or take. And it just it seemed like longer than that. Even now, I every now and then I will battle guilt.
1: Yes, from
0: yes. having my son yes. there.
1: Yeah, my and, son still remembers mm. the things that went on, and my son is tw- my oldest son is 25 years old now, and there are times when he'll say, "Do you remember?" You know, and and sometimes you find that guilt trying to creep back up on you. Yeah, you know, and I've had to apologize to him for actually having him in that situation. And there are so many times that I've prayed, Lord, please don't let this have had an impact on him to believe that this is the way that women are to be treated. You know, because that age is like a prime age where they're absorbing everything and learning everything. And my son was like two years old. And like I said, I stayed till, for five years. Yeah, so that had a huge impact on him. He didn't see the fighting all the time, but he felt the tension, right? That atmosphere.
0: Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that because a lot of people really aren't honest about that part. The the after shocks long after you've left the earthquake
1: oh, area. Yeah. yeah.
0: So thank you for sharing that. So I want to talk about your pregnancy induced cardiomyopathy
1: number one what is that yes <laughs> uh, that that's a disorder that's called the silent killer and it's mm. known as the silent killer because you usually the the women don't usually have any signs or symptoms or anything to allow you to know that something is about to happen um this is where your heart enlarges Everybody's heart enlarges because of the increase in blood flow when you're pregnant, but your heart forgets to go back down to its normal size. So it becomes enlarged. And when it becomes enlarged, it begins to malfunction with its pumping process and it begins to just pump blood too quickly throughout your body causing, you know, fluid to back up into your lungs, which is very dangerous. And that's what happened to me. I had um, pulmonary edema, which my lungs filled with fluid, and I just could not breathe. Mm. And it just happened to me so suddenly. I wasn't sick. I wasn't feeling anything wrong with me. I was, you know, two days postpartum after having the baby, and I had no clue that anything was wrong or that anything was about to happen other than my blood pressure was a little bit elevated when i left the hospital and that was it
0: wow so that was when that was when you Basically died for 16 minutes.
1: Yes. When I got to the hospital, I actually got my hospital records because, you know, a lot of times people will hear you with your testimonies, but I wanted to have something tangible to actually show people that this actually happened. Hmm. Um, just like there was Doubtful Thomas in the Bible, <laughs> right? You, know, you call people things, and they don't really get the full impact of what happened unless they can see it for themselves. But when I got to the hospital, my blood pressure was literally in the two hundreds—that was stroke level. But I was hmm. still awake during the whole process. But I was breathing like a fish, as if a fish when you take it out of the fish tank and you, if you would just let it flop around. Yeah. So I was gasping for air and each gas for air was lessening um, the functioning of my heart. So it was killing my heart. And uh, when I got to the hospital, it was so chaotic because here I am, this 37-year-old woman with five children. And most of my friends work in the ER because they're nurses and it's a local hospital. So it's so chaotic. They're calling a code and they're calling in that I'm coming. And when I get there, they're debating about what to do because it's such a crisis. It's such a serious situation that Half, you know, like the respiratory therapy department wanted to put me out, you know, put me under anesthesia and have me resting because they thought it was inhumane to keep me breathing like that. Well, the doctor didn't want to do that. And because he didn't do that, what ended up happening is I ended up blacking out. So, you know, I started foaming at the mouth because all of the fluid just came from my lungs. Mm -hmm. I, I was basically drowning on the inside. And so they ended up having to intubate me or put me um, on a ventilator for three days. So I was on that ventilator after my heart stopped and, you know, for three days. And here I am, I had a two-day-old baby that I was nursing. And so my husband was by himself. We had no plans made for anything. And we didn't think anything was going to happen. So we were just, he was just at a loss. He was like a basket case. Hmm. We have, you know, virtually all of our families in Baltimore. So it was, it was chaotic. And my sister was pregnant at the same time. She was eight months pregnant as this was happening with me. Hmm. And she was in Maryland. So she had to travel here at eight months pregnant. My son was away at school at Averett at the time. He had to leave classes and come here. So it was very chaotic, and meanwhile, I'm out in a coma, and I don't have any idea what's going on.
0: They didn't declare you right, because like for them to like declare you, like your heart and your brain function stops. Right. Okay. See, right. I, I've i watched enough um, shows. <laughs> I think I understand.
1: That they called him in. They actually called him in the room to, and they told him it was to say goodbye to me. So they had taken all of the tubes out, you know, they had taken everything off or whatever, and they had told him to come in and say goodbye to me. And he said he came in and he prayed with me. And he said he was crying so hysterically, he he was amazed that he could even get a prayer out. But he prayed and he gave me a kiss. And then he left out of the room. And so when he left out of the room, he said that About maybe 10 minutes later, they came running out of the room and telling them, okay, we're going to take her to the intensive care unit because we don't know how, but her heart started back up again. So they were all in shock because they had just told them that my heart had stopped and that they were no longer going to do CPR or try to revive me or do any of that anymore.
0: They witnessed a miracle.
1: And at 16 minutes, at four minutes, The depletion of oxygen to your brain literally makes you brain dead. And Mm -hmm. you have lack of oxygen to your organs. It kills your organs. And I had none of that. Wow. I had none of that. God protected my body and my mind. I had none of that to happen.
0: Wow. Again, (laughs) did you, did you detail that? Like, did you write
1: about that journey? Yes, I did. I have been praying and God put on my heart, the story of Lazarus.
0: Mm. And
1: I actually did, um, a sermon at my church on Lazarus and, you know, making that transition because there were a lot of things in my life. There was a lot of fear during that time in my life that I was struggling with. There were a lot of things that God was telling me to do that I was not doing at the time And so it was like a huge transition for me after that process happened, because everything that I was supposed to be doing started to manifest itself in my life. Mm. And it was just amazing. I can remember um, I got out of the hospital. The other amazing thing is after all of that, in three days, I woke up and they took the ventilator out. After that, in seven days, I was literally out of the hospital and home again. So it didn't even take me long, but I had a heart 5 to 10% because that you're not supposed to be able to do anything. I couldn't walk without becoming out of breath because of that. Hmm. So, you know, it was just amazing in itself that I was still able to come home with that like that. They usually... I was so shocked that they let me come home like that.
0: Right, without but they did. They sent me home. Wow, what? So that that was your second chance of life. Did you come yes, back it was. like yes, it uh, was. more of an appreciation? Like, okay, I'm going hard because it's apparently it's not time for me to go home. Like, what was your mindset? And what are some of the things that you did with that second chance?
1: I felt so honored and so blessed. God gave me a second chance. I mean, I was so overwhelmed with emotion because I, I was just, when I, when I read my papers, I was just so overwhelmed because people don't survive things like that. Right. It don't survive. And the fact that I woke up and that I was able to still have my right mind to not come back in a, in a crippled state or handicapped in any way or suffering from any kind of uh, major diseases or disorders, I was just so thankful that I promised God that when I came back, whatever he had for me to do, That's what I was going to put all of my energy and all of my effort into doing. And uh, the first couple of nights that I was home, he gave me the idea of my cupcake business. I mean, it was like a download Hmm. coming to me. The business name, Herbal Delights Cupcakes, the flavors that I was supposed to do, how I was supposed to make the cupcakes. And I had never baked a cupcake in my life. So I knew it was a download from God and an idea directly from Him. Then I was afforded the opportunity to become an author. And the way that that happened was just amazing. A friend that I hadn't talked to in about three years called me up with Nikki Woods on the phone. And of Hmm. course I didn't know who she was at the time and uh, when she afforded me the opportunity to be a part of the anthology without even a second thought to it I was like floored because I was like God is just opening doors and he's just waiting for my yes. He's opening these doors and he's waiting for my yes. And whereas though before I was so fearful of going forward and walking out my purpose, now I was like, no, I get it, God. I am going to give my yes. I'm going to follow through with what it is you said for me to do, and I'm going to give my yes. And once I did that, opportunities just started open up over and over and over again. I did the second book, and then my third book, and then I was able to collaborate in a poetry book. And so... It has been a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful journey um, since what happened to me. The trauma and the obstacles have made me um, the person that I am today, and I wouldn't have it any other way because without those obstacles that I faced in my life, I probably would still be that fearful person that didn't want to move forward with what God was calling me to do. It just took that nudge. You know, and that experience for me to say, this is the life that God has given me. I need to live it to the fullest and I need to bring him glory, not bring myself glory through the things that I'm doing, but I need to utilize these things to bring him glory and to help other people, to help bring other people to the knowledge of God and to the fact that we don't have to walk around fearful as believers. We are entitled. We walk in power. We walk in authority. You know, we are made in his image and in his likeness that there's nothing impossible for him. You know, as long as we put him first, he'll give us our heart desires and add things onto us that we desire. So we just got to put him first. We got to listen to his still small voice and we can't be fearful. We got to remove fear and replace it with faith.
0: Maybe that was his way of slowing you down as well. Yes. (laughs) because you know I had to I haven't had an experience anything nearly like that but I realized that you know a lot of times we say we don't you know people say they don't hear God or they pray about something but we're still going 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 we're not slowing down enough to hear the answer until and if we don't slow down something will happen to shut us down
1: Mm -hmm.
0: like that you know shaking you okay look This is me. I'm trying to answer you. Will you be quiet and listen, like you would tell a kid? That's right. What are the rest? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you had a a big scare and a big rest. What are the the names of those books, so the audience can you know look them up? And I will, of course, link your Amazon's author page in the show notes. So, guys, if y'all listening, y'all could definitely click on and support that but what are the names of some of the
1: books um the first book which is the anthology um, with nikki woods and the 19 other authors is shift on and then my books are the first one is um transition your life inspirational guidance through uplifting quotes and the second book is miracles of life how Mm. i survived the silent killer
0: love it love it all of them are on amazon so they could just yeah. go to amazon and type it in but like yeah. i said i will also include the link for the books and you guys could find it on the show notes and you can also go on my website as well miss maisha do you have a website or can you give your your website and your social media information while we're just kind of at that point before i go on to my next question
1: Yes, um on social media Facebook I am Maisha Gilliam L on Instagram I am at iammge that's the same for Twitter and Periscope also and then the website is um herbaldelightscupcakes.com
0: And I'll make sure all that information is listed. See how I could get some cupcakes to Louisiana. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So when things get get tough and, you know, as you're going along this journey of, you know, producing and, and speaking and speaking life into others and advocating, what motivates you to keep going?
1: What motivates me to keep going is when I see people actually changing their lives. That Mm -hmm. gives me the push to actually keep going. I love seeing people get that epiphany and make that transition in their life. I love seeing their eyes light up when they start to realize, you know, what power they have um, to change their life. I love seeing them realize that they're not just helpless and powerless, you know, that they can change their thoughts in order to change their life. And so that's what really pushes and motivates me aside from my family and, and God. And, and just, you know, as my pastor says, you know, don't let God down. That, that's a huge motivation for me. Don't let God down. And whenever I start feeling weary, whenever I start feeling tired, I think about that. Don't let God down. You know, mm-hmm. continue to push, continue to persevere because somebody's waiting for you. Somebody's waiting for you to share your story. Somebody's waiting for you, you know, to come to their aid. Somebody's waiting for you to get out and maybe help in your community to educate these sisters and brothers as far as domestic violence is concerned. So when I hold my testimony back, I'm holding back some, I'm holding up somebody's destiny.
0: I love that. I love that. Don't let God down. That's gonna. That's a good point. And I'm actually, cause I always say classes in session. I'm going to write that down, and use it as something. So where when I start getting frustrated, like in I don't want to say complaining, but Lord, yeah. why, why, Lord, if I'm doing what you, so, you know, like I, yeah. I'll go there. So that's a good point that I'm gonna like. Literally, right on the card and posted somewhere, just as a remembrance of right wh- you know where we are now versus what we had to go through to get here, so thank yes. you very much for that. When you think about one of the things I always say is like you're either guilty or great by association, yeah, but when you think about the people in your life, the people you associate with, how big a part of your journey do you think they play?
1: Definitely, my husband has played a huge part in my life. Um, he's helped me to realize that. He helped me to realize that all men weren't the same, mm. and he helped me to realize that love is possible, and that there are people that actually say it and mean it, mm. <laughs> without any underlying any underlining uh, things behind it. They actually say it and they mean it. And the way you know that they mean it is through their actions. So I learned with him that love is an action word. So by learning that now, that's why I'm the way I am with other people. And I was able to let my guard down, you know, and extend love to other people in that same manner that he extended love to me. Because it takes a lot to deal with somebody that's gone through domestic violence and that has been molested. It takes a special type of person. To deal with that and be understanding when it comes to that,
0: I I agree. Because we can be
1: very fragile, and so it, it takes it takes a certain type of person um, to deal with that. So I really believe that God placed my husband in my life, you know, for that reason. Um, he is the person that I needed in my life at the time where I was, and so my sister definitely. You know, my sister is a motivator and an encourager. You know, I've never known my sister to say anything negative to me about anything I was doing. She's always encouraged me. And she's my younger sister. Hmm. So she pushes me. She encourages me. She's always telling me how great I am. And, you know, oh, it's so wonderful you're doing that. And we all need <laughs> people like that in our corners, especially on those days when we're dragging ourselves to do what we need to do. We need those people in our corner. And then thirdly, definitely um, my children and my church family. Um, when, when my incident happened in 2012, they stopped what they were doing. Many of them work. But they had to help my baby transition from breast, being breastfed to a bottle right. without me having anything to do with it. <laughs> and he was only two days old. Hmm. They babysat my baby around the clock for that uh, seven days. They came over and sat with me. They took care of him. They made dinners for my children and my family because I couldn't walk you know, that far of a distance without getting out of breath. They didn't let me do anything. And even now, they are still a huge support. They are right there with me. Their prayers and their guidance, they, are, they have been there since, you know, the very beginning of when I started to walk in my purpose. My pastor's mm-hmm. wife gave me my first book about fear and how not to be fearful and how to walk in my destiny.
0: Mm. I, I, love, I love that. I love that, you know, your family is your support system both at home and your church family as well. So when you meet or connect with outside people, does that make you hold them to a certain standard? Or how do you know if this is one of the individuals that you want to surround yourself with?
1: I always pray about it. Mm. And and because you know how sometimes people can behave a certain way in front of, I say they put on a mask. Yeah. And then as you get to know them, that mask starts to come off because nobody can pretend but so long. Right. So I say they always wear, wear a mask. And then when they, they let the mask down, you see the real person. So I always take it to prayer. And now there's some people that you meet and you automatically know you're like this person was sent in my life from God. There is no doubt because we just click, we just mesh. We just, you know, the things that we have in common are just so powerful. There's no way that God put this person in my life for us not to connect with each other. Mm. We're supposed to connect. We're supposed to do something together. I mean, there's people that I have automatically said to myself, Hey, we, I've gotten off the phone with them and called them back and like, look, we need to connect because there is like a bigger purpose behind this. There's a bigger meaning behind why we actually met. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I seriously feel like you're one of those people because I haven't talked to anybody in a long time that I've had so much in common with. Thank you. So it is like (laughs) so amazing. I don't believe in coincidences. So it's just so amazing to me how many of the things we have in common. It's just amazing.
0: I, I agree 100. And that's one one thing I tell people all the time. I think um, it was the beginning of 2018. Or sometime in 2017, I just literally started praying for connections, you know, Um, because we pray about everything else. And the last thing we think about is that part. And so um, I noticed people dropped off (laughs) and and then, but it was, it was replaced by people that I knew was sent, you know, and, um, so yeah, we're definitely going to have to stay connected after this this interview. Yes. One question. Yes. What do you wish you knew from day one?
1: I wish I knew who I was from day one. Mm. That's the biggest thing. I wish I knew who I was because if I knew who I was, I could have gotten started a lot earlier on following God's purpose.
0: Wow. And on that note, we're gonna end with a personal quote from Miss Maisha. Yes. Look, I, I've been saying it right this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us your personal quote. Okay. And pers- why that's your personal quote.
1: My personal quote is how your life begins is not how your life has to end. You can always turn things around and transition your life today. If you change your thoughts, you can change your life. And that's my personal quote, because I truly believe that our thoughts are our biggest hindrance. And if you begin to look at things through a different perspective, then you can change any situation, any circumstance, any obstacle that comes up in your life just by changing the way you're thinking and looking at, looking at the situation.
0: And that's where the mic drops. Guys, <laughs> you have heard a great discussion today on second chances. And for me, one of the main things that stick out the most is don't let God down. That's what I want you guys yeah. to reflect on in tonight's show. So make sure you connect with our guest, Miss Maisha Mimi. Yes. <laughs> Gilliam L. Her information will be posted, and let us know your opinion on this show. You can get in touch and join the conversation on our Facebook page or Instagram for Define You Radio. And with that being said, everybody have a great day. Pens and papers down. Class is over. Yay! Yay that
1: was awesome. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening. Connect with the show at the Define You Facebook. Until next time, remember your past doesn't define you. It gives you definition, and what you do with that is up to you.